Life on Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Life of Jesus, Book 3, Manifestation to Israel. Chapter 1, The Passover and the Temple. The time had now fully come for Jesus to manifest himself to Israel. Pausing only a few days in the homes of his small band of followers at Capernaum, he left Galilee so that he might be in the city and sanctuary of God in time for the Passover. The only appropriate place for him to reveal himself was in Jerusalem, and there could be no more fitting occasion than the feast of the Passover. The rulers must be given the first opportunity of accepting their Messiah. But the advent of Christ meant a purge. It could not have been otherwise. Wherever self-interest and fleshly ambitions order men's lives, the coming of Christ will mean a sweeping away of everything which does despite to the Spirit of Grace. Year by year Jesus had gone up to the temple. Each visit would reveal more of the greed and injustice of those responsible for the ordered worship of God. It was necessary for the people to bring offerings, and it was convenient that they should be readily available. It was important that the temple levies should be required in the form of a standard half-shekel coin, in view of the thousands of foreign Jews who came from all parts of the empire. Arrangements were therefore made for the sale of animals and the exchange of foreign money from which the Levites and high priestly families found a source of immense profit, and establishing a monopoly had imposed more and more abuses upon the people who came to worship. Those who did not purchase their sacrifices in the temple courts were not immune from the avarice of the priests, because they had to submit them to the inspection of qualified examiners who were authorised to charge for each animal. These examiners were subject to human frailties and increased their revenue by receiving bribes when they found real or imaginary faults in the animals submitted to them. The activities of the money changers were not confined to changing enough foreign money for the temple levy and the animal offerings, but they negotiated all sorts of financial transactions. Many of their dealings led to violent disputes and not infrequently to blows and riots, which needed the attention of the temple police. These desecrations, mingling with the noise of literally thousands of animals driven through the seething masses of worshippers, made up a scene of pandemonium which must have brought smiles of contempt from the watchful Roman sentries on the walls above. They evoked a burning indignation in the heart of Jesus, which frequent visits only served to intensify. Now the time had come to open his ministry, and he did not spare. Twisting some cords into a whip, he drove the animals from the owners toward the great gates. 
He flung tables aside, scattering the paths of many. Men cringed in fear before him. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Slowly the storm subsided, but no man opposed him. Those responsible for the desecration came forward, but their attack was frustrated before it could begin by the silent figure standing before them, his eyes blazing with anger and challenge. Looking upon him, they recognised their guilt and were powerless to charge him. There was a heavenly bearing about him that took their minds back to the wilderness and the Baptist. They remembered his proclamation of the coming of the Messiah. It was with no conscious deliberation that this man had spoken of the temple as my father's house. Was it possible? Finally, one became the spokesman of them all. But his arrogance evaporated in the presence of this scourging anger. What signs showest thou us, seeing that thou doest these things? If these words were in any way a renewal of the wilderness temptation, cast thyself down, Jesus gave no indication of it. He corrected the subtle mistake of his questioner, who was only entitled to ask Jesus to give a sign, not to show one, to establish his authority as a prophet. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This was no empty challenge, it was a prophecy. The men who were responsible for these crushing abuses were the men who were to be ultimately responsible for the calamities of AD 70, when the temple, the city and the land were lost amid indescribable horrors. Yet the temple then had done its work. It had been replaced by an eternal sanctuary, the chief cornerstone of which was the Son of God. In the act of condemning the temple rulers, Jesus takes the first step along the road which will lead to his crucifixion. But in that act, his body will fulfill the function which was only typified by the temple and its services, and his resurrection will be the final vindication of his authority. The Jews did not forget these words of Jesus, nor did they ever forgive him for them. They misquoted them in their effort to condemn him, and thus established their truth. But there were others who remembered them to better purpose. When despair had given place to joy at the sight of their risen Lord, the disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. We cannot leave this first great incident in the public ministry of Jesus without considering the anger of Christ. There are those who find this scene difficult to reconcile with the character and mission of a son who came to reveal the love of his father. That may be because there is a tendency to see in the indignation of Jesus a reflection of their own angry moments. Much of our anger 
anger is a revelation of weakness, not of strength. He was silent when most men would be stirred into uncontrollable fury. He was consumed with zealous indignation when most men's lips would be sealed by cowardice and their minds drugged by worldly excuses. Jesus listened in silence to the jibes of his tormentors. He allowed his enemies to tear his flesh and pierce his head with thorns. But when his father's glory was questioned, or his brethren's welfare endangered, men quailed before the majesty of his wrath. We see in the anger of Christ an ingredient of his perfect character, which was a manifestation of the attributes of a God of goodness and severity. The purging of the temple was followed by works of power. Jesus gave abundant evidence of his authority to those who had eyes to see, and while the great majority of people living in and around the city were too greatly dominated by the priests to acknowledge him, a few precious friendships were probably formed in those early days. Many believed because they saw his works, but it was a superficial acknowledgement of his power, and that is never the best reason for following Christ. Jesus, who knew all men, did not trust himself unto them. He knew their allegiance had its source in wonder, not in belief, and he acted towards them accordingly. Chapter 2 Nicodemus A figure moved furtively among the shadows of the city buildings. He walked quickly yet carefully, obviously intent upon avoiding recognition. Halting at last, he knocked on the door of a house, and after a few whispered words was admitted. Nicodemus was probably the spokesman of a small number of thoughtful rulers who shared the expectation of the Messiah, had pondered over the message of John the Baptist, witnessed the power with which Jesus had purged the temple, and seen the miracles he had done in the city. He was anxious to talk with Jesus, but he was also anxious not to compromise himself. He had more to lose than the Galilean fishermen, yet he was sincere, and if he had not the courage to come boldly to Jesus in the daytime, he had at least the courage to come, and was humble enough to address this unlettered Galilean carpenter as Rabbi. The opening words betray the courtesy of the council chamber. Master, we know thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles thou doest except God be with him. So Nicodemus, although a ruler in Israel, had little more to commend him than the people of the city who were impressed by the works of power. Jesus immediately sweeps the courtesies aside and gets down to fundamentals. Except a man be born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus had come to discourse on theological issues with one he had reason to respect. He very quickly found that he had nothing to say. In spite of his cultured approach, he betrays himself as a materialist, the conventional product of a centuries-old system which had lost touch with reality. Yet in his materialism, Nicodemus was nearer the truth than he knew. The new birth which brings men into relationship with God, and eventually into his kingdom, demands childlike qualities of simplicity and trust. Patiently, Jesus elaborates his first revelation. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Despite his efforts, man cannot rise above his mortality. Entrance into the kingdom demands something which is impossible of accomplishment by human endeavour. Nothing less than a rebirth from above. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. No man can understand the divine method of election by which the power of God, through his word and through his Son, touches individual hearts. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. We can only respond and worship. But Nicodemus was looking in the wrong direction. For him the law was an end rather than a means, and righteousness was legal rather than spiritual. Jesus was speaking a language he did not comprehend, and he remained dull of hearing, his perception clouded by his religious background. For all his sincerity, he did not have the spirit-quickening experience of Andrew and John when they had said, Master, where dwellest thou? Or the sudden revelation of Nathaniel when he cried, Thou art the Son of God. Where a Mary and a Peter, looking into the eyes of their master, apprehend truths that would have found it difficult to express, the learned theologian was ignorant. How can these things be? In effect, Jesus said to him, Are you one of Israel's teachers? And yet have you failed to have communion with God? Does not even the experience of prayer bring you into God's presence? I am speaking of things that are an everyday experience to me. If you do not understand these common blessings, how can you soar with me into the heavenlies? But he did take Nicodemus to the threshold and reveal to him the mystery of God's salvation. He showed him how the Son of Man a title Jesus loved to use, and one which embodies both the grace of God and the highest aspiration of man. 
is destined to be lifted up that men believing on him might be redeemed from their deathly heritage in Adam and have eternal life. Such is the love of God and such his gift to men. But there are those who will never believe. The Son will not judge them. They are condemned already. The world judges itself in rejecting him and clinging to the flesh, thus confirming its unworthiness of eternal life. The ruler of the Jews went out into the night. What he had expected to be a conversation had become a discourse, and one ending on a note of tension which was a challenge to him. He was destined to witness the consummation of the gift of the Father who so loved the world. His conduct then would be beyond reproach. The movement of the Spirit gradually broke down the obstacles of his training, and although we hear little of him afterwards, we may be confident that the lifting up of the Son of Man drew Nicodemus finally to him. From Jerusalem, Jesus went out into Judea preaching, his disciples baptizing those who responded to his call. John was still active, but the presence of Jesus resulted in a further diminishing of his support as more and more people obeyed him by resorting to Jesus. The Jews either deliberately or inadvertently stirred up trouble among John's more intimate disciples over their respective baptisms. But their greatest problem was the growing popularity of Jesus and the waning influence of their austere but beloved prophet. What was a strain to the immature faith of John's disciples was a source of deep joy to John. He explains that joy to them in words which reveal his greatness. He likens his position to that of the friend of the bridegroom, who makes all arrangements for the marriage. But when the marriage is over, the friend's work is done. It would be no mark of friendship to intrude further into the relationship which he has done so much to consummate. All that remains for him is to stand aside, rejoice in the union, and be thankful that he has been allowed to do so much. Thus says the great-hearted prophet, This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The Jewish rulers had rejected their Messiah. His ministry had begun in the temple, then we find him in the city. Now he has left Jerusalem for the country districts outside. Finally he leaves Judea altogether and moves through Samaria to Galilee. The rejection is not described in words, but it is only too eloquently portrayed in these successive movements of the Messiah from the true centre of his ministry. Until he at last set his face to go to Jerusalem, because his hour was approaching, his visits to the city were brief and disturbing. 
He always asserted his messiahship there, and his claims and the works of authority which supported them gave the Jews less and less excuse for not knowing the day of their visitation.